This is Julie Hotz, and you're listening to Unrooted. So I ended up taking a little breather over the summer, as you might have noticed. I was out of town a lot, and honestly, on a subconscious level, I think it was good for me to get a little break from asking the question, where is my home? And instead, to just try and let wherever I am be home. With that being said, let's get back to it. A quick reminder that season one of Unrooted is serialized, so you might want to start with episode one if this is your first time tuning in. That being said, each episode is made to stand alone. There is a content warning for this episode. This episode contains a brief mention of sexual assault. Now, on to the show. Hey, how do I sound? Good, can you hear me? I can hear you great. Um, I have a headset on, so let me know if it sounds any like scratchy at all, but I'm also going to turn on my recorder. Cool. Yeah. Recording. <laughs> this is Gail Straub. Can you uh, first just introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Gail Straub. I live in Dover, New Hampshire. Gail is a freelance photographer, writer, content strategist, audio editor, and producer. She's the founder of She Explores, which is a podcast, blog, and social media community for inquisitive women in the outdoors, focusing on landscape, travel, and storytelling. It's essentially conversations and stories about women and the way they interpret the time that they spend outside. She Explores creates space for and amplifies voices that aren't always heard in the outdoors and seeks to listen, learn, share, and facilitate hard conversations. It's about outward and inward journeys. You can listen to more of Gail's voice on She Explores podcast. I should also mention, Gail is a good friend of mine. So how does she tie into the story? Well, a few months before I moved from Los Angeles to New York City, before I fell into that deep well of homesickness, I was sitting on a soft gray couch in the breakfast nook of my place in L.A., the California sunshine was streaming in through the window, and I was on the phone with my friend Gail Straub. Moving to New York City was not yet locked in, but it looked like it might be happening. I told Gail everything, and she said, Well, if you do find yourself on the East Coast next year, maybe we could go on a snowshoeing trip up to a hut in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Without knowing it, Gail had thrown me a life raft, a little something to cling to when the storm got rough. Even though I was, and still am, a total romantic about the mountains of the West Coast, the thought of getting to spend time outside with a dear friend, of trees blanketed in snow, and of seeing Gail's home mountain range made me excited. Gail was no stranger to the West Coast. She'd visited it often and was well aware of all that it had to offer. A few years prior, she'd lived in a van for a year with her life partner, John. And in the end, when their trip was over, they chose to go back and stay in the Northeast, where they were both originally from. Though I was very skeptical of the Northeast, I thought that maybe Gail could share her secrets with me, that she could show me how to make the Northeast home too. Once it was decided that I was gonna move to New York City, as I got closer and closer to the move date, as the panic began to build, I would tell myself over and over, 
You're going to get to go snowshoeing with Gail. You're going to get to go snowshoeing with Gail. You're going to get to go snowshoeing with Gail. In fact, I found myself creating a little list of all the things I was excited by. The subway. I love public transportation. New York City is a walking enthusiast dream city. Steam vents are everywhere. I love the way the light bounces off the skyscrapers. I tried to make this list as long as possible. I tried to make it longer than the cons list. I tried to stifle my dread with thoughts of good things. I was trying to cope. While I was still living in L.A., when Miguel and I first began dating, I was over at his house one night. He loves records, and he'd just put one on right before I walked into the room. There was an acoustic guitar and this angelic voice, a tenor who slipped into falsetto. I stopped in my tracks and asked, Who is this? Miguel told me it was an artist named Adam Torres. I was already obsessed. Right before moving to New York City, as I was trying to compile my little prose list, Miguel told me, Adam Torres is coming to New York City to play in February. Wanna go? Another pro. Yes, yes, yes. Of course I wanted to go. Maybe all these pros could collectively help me combat my homesickness, my hesitations, my fears. Maybe all these things could help me turn New York City into home. You know what happens next. I packed my stuff, drove my car across the country, moved all my stuff into the Brooklyn apartment, and then the homesickness set in. But a week later, I was sitting in a booth at Trans Pecos, a venue on the edge of Queens and Brooklyn. So my name is Adam Torres, and I'm from Austin, Texas. Woo! Austin! Those songs comforted me. And for an evening, I was no longer homesick. But one concert is not a game-changer, nor had I expected it to be. I was still walking around most of the time cloaked in homesickness and oppression. That was definitely intensified by the lack of sunlight. Maybe my spirits had been lifted for that evening, but I still had to move my car multiple times a week. I barely had any friends in the city. I still needed work, and I still didn't feel any closer to being at home. There was, however, the snow. As much as I hated the gray and the lack of sunlight, I loved the snow and the cold. Sometimes I would walk instead of taking the bus or subway to save money because each one-way trip cost $2.75 and I was broke. There were a few times that I walked miles in the snow to save money. Sometimes this would make me sad and I'd feel extra lonely and cold. But most of the time, it actually made me feel alive. I like being the first one to make snowy tracks on a sidewalk. I fell in love with the Winter Wonderland version of Prospect Park. I took pictures, 
and played in the snow. I was a kid again, and I had my snowshoeing trip with Gail to look forward to. Finally, the time arrived. I met up with Gail on the main New Hampshire border, and we carpooled up to the White Mountains. A day or two prior, a big storm had come through and dumped feet of fresh snow in the mountains. We couldn't even park at the trailhead because it was so full of snow, so we tacked on an extra mile of road walking to our already late start. On the trail, someone before us had broken in the trail with skis, compressing the snow into a path of two skinny little ski lines. But skis are not as wide as snowshoes, and the miles of uphill and re-breaking ski trail to fit snowshoes was grueling. Darkness fell, and we labored into the night. I was so out of shape. I was sucking in the cold air and wondering why I do these kinds of things to myself. We walked across a frozen lake as the wind howled. We began to wonder if we'd actually find the hut we were supposedly snowshoeing to. The hut with a wood-burning fire and full kitchen. I briefly imagined how miserable we'd be if we had to turn around and hike all the way back out in the dark. But then the hut appeared. The fire was still going. The caretaker was nice. And we ate lots of food. After dinner, we made our way up through banks of snow to one of the bunk rooms. We were exhausted, or at least I certainly was. But endorphins were pumping through my veins, thanks to the hours of full-body slogging uphill through the snow. Endorphins were a welcome change to the fog of homesickness. I know, I am currently warming my socks and my <laughs> booties. Uh, I, there's like very little I like so much as climbing, I and mean, we're not in a tent right now, but climbing into a tent at the end of a day when you've just like hiked and you're super tired, like there's just like nothing better than like getting into your sleeping bag, Closing your eyes and thinking, this is all I have to do right now. All I have to do is just, like, close my eyes and, like, sleep. I mean, then you never know. The weather could go crazy. (laughs) We stayed up late chatting about moving and books and other nerdy stuff. What do you have on your Kindle? Oh, you know, I didn't buy anything new. So my sister and I decided to start, we're going to start doing a little book club, which I'm excited about, just the two of us. (laughs) Hey, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? I can. This is Laura Straub. I am Laura Straub. I consider myself to be a writer, even though I am often not writing. I work in the restaurant industry, and I'm Gail's twin, but that'll be obvious. That's right. The sister Gail said she was starting a book club with is Laura, her twin. Uh, Well, thanks for hopping on this call and for talking to me. Of course. Um, Did you interview Gail yet? Yeah, so I actually... The theme for this episode is more about... It kind of correlates when I got to New York and I was really depressed. And then I was trying to find things to look forward to and trying to find a way to make New York feel like home. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I had kept telling myself was like, well... You know, Gail has traveled the West and she moved back to New Hampshire. There are good things about the East Coast. And like, I'm really excited to go backpacking and to see the White Mountains. And um, so I really am interested in the idea of making home. I wasn't just interested in the idea of choosing to make a place home and finding out all of Gail's East Coast secrets. 
I was interested in the many ways home takes shape in Gail's life. And since a big part of Gail's version of home includes her twin sister, it made sense to talk to Laura too. We're going to be jumping back and forth between Gail and Laura a lot in this episode. In fact, let's go back to Gail as she takes us back in time to when she and Laura were growing up. So we were Gail and Laura, just like, like it was one word. It was, we were definitely like linked in a way that is difficult to articulate and was hard to really understand until I got older. Here's Laura. Now I, we, I find it fun when people ask us if we're twins because it's not an everyday occurrence anymore when we're together. And my, one of my favorite jokes is, Gail won't let me do it, is I want to tell people that we're, we're not, you know, we're not related, we're married. What are you talking about? <laughs> she won't let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> they do have an older brother, Matt, whom they love very much and played with too growing up. But for the sake of this story, we're going to be focusing on Gail and Laura. Here's Gail again. I grew up in Barnstead, New Hampshire. It's a fairly rural town. There's not a whole lot going on. It's 50 square miles. Um, Growing up, there were no stoplights, which I liked to brag about for some reason. Here's Laura again. Uh, We grew up with the same 60 kids in the same classroom for, you know, kindergarten to eighth grade. So it was very close-knit. Everyone kind of knew everybody's business or lack thereof. My parents' house is the house that they still live in, and they bought it when I was five months old. It's a 200-year-old farmhouse. My sister and I used to spend hours looking for traces of, like, history, basically, just like the people who came before us. So we have this barn, too, um, that's still there. And we would go through the, the previous owners left a lot of their what they'd accumulated over the years. So it was really fun as a kid to be able to go and like search through that stuff and kind of imagine who was there before. There was even an old piano in the barn that only had a few keys that still worked that were connected to strike a chord. And when wind blew through the barn, it would almost sound like someone was playing the piano. So it's like a pretty strong, nostalgic memory for me. We just kind of had a world of our own We had a nice big backyard and mom tried to get us outside so she could have time alone as much as possible, which now that I've spent time with small children, I understand (laughs) that impetus. Throughout my whole childhood and still today, my parents were basically redoing it. So gutting rooms, you know, taking out plaster, putting up sheetrock, changing, just changing it um, throughout my childhood and taking a really long time doing it. And I was always a super nostalgic kid, so it, I don't know, it like, I think a lot of kids are nostalgic um, or don't like change. I definitely did not like change, and I didn't like it when they would redo a room or, um, you know, if you could see wallpaper, like a few layers beneath, if that was all gone. I don't know, I would, it it bothered me. Like when we got rid of the clawfoot tub, it, it bothered me. For me, nostalgia didn't really kick in until I was about 12 when my my grandmother left her house in Bridgehampton to move into an assisted living home. That's when I started to like really trace things over and over in my mind or like trace a place Um, because I would think about her house and and how the how the car sounded when we drove in over her driveway and how she would always be waiting in the foyer for us. Gail was the one who always 
got sad and didn't ever want any, like she would get mad when we would change a room and she'd be like, why do you have to change it? Like it's good the way it is. And I never minded. It was kind of inconvenient, but it was the, the house was always kind of in a state of flux anyway. Usually it just kind of created a new place for us to play a different game. So it kind of just changes in the house would spark different creative play. So that was good for me. But now I, as an adult, I have a lot of dreams that my parents are moving out of our house and that makes me really sad. So I think I'm way more nostalgic as an adult than I was as a kid. And now Gail says she doesn't care, but I think that's more of a hardening on her end. (laughs) I asked Gail, what was her first big memory of being away from home? So we didn't travel when I was a kid for like our vacation was just typically either in New Hampshire uh, to a lake that was about 45 minutes away from our house or to grandparents' house. Um, And, you know, grandparents' houses are inherently homes away from home, you know, I guess to me it was. So that certainly doesn't count. I think it I had two summers in high school that would qualify as two true experiences separate from home. So the summer that I turned, I turned 16 in May, and both my sister and I... Gail and Laura went with a relative, his daughter, and one other girl on a road trip from New Orleans to Idaho. We went on a three and a half week road trip across the American West. So I flew to New Orleans um, with my sister. We drove all the way up to Idaho and then back around. I thought the landscapes, you know, really just Gail and I both, like we just stare out the window for hours and not talk. It was just, it was so beautiful, especially going from, you know, we went from Louisiana to Texas to New Mexico up to Colorado and Idaho. And so we were seeing just a whole range of landscapes that we'd never seen before. And that was such a separate experience from home. Like everything was different. I'd never camped like that. I'd only really camped in my backyard for fun. I'd never like set up camp every night. I never looked across plains and just been able to see the sky for that long before. Like everything's a little bit smaller in New England. You can't see as far because of all the trees and the smaller hills. I just never really felt that expansiveness before. And that paralleled with having just gone through puberty and kind of starting to figure out what I wanted to read and how I want to express myself. That was definitely an experience that felt outside of home. I really like the extremes of it. I like the extremes of the weather. And I just, I love the freedom of, you know, before I'd had like such a set schedule and, you know, that, that kind of child routine. And now like I didn't have to do anything at a certain time. And I, I just felt much more free. I took so many photos of that trip with a little disposable film camera. When I got home, I just made this album full of the pictures that were printed with quotes from my journal that are all silly and existential um, about the bigness of the West. And I loved, I loved running out there. I loved the challenge of the different elevations. Both Gail and Laura were running cross country in high school we were starting to kind of come into ourselves athletically. And my sister on that trip, with the elevation, she really got a boost physically. But at the same time, she was starting to not feed herself the way that she needed to as an athlete. Um, And she was starting to have more symptoms of depression manifest. And we were starting to grow 
part or that trip made it harder for me to relate to her because I didn't know what to say and I didn't know how to act. And that felt like a bit of a distancing from home, too, and a bit of growing up. It definitely was an opening trip in a lot of ways for me and my sister. Like, we, for years after, would email each other and talk about planning another trip like that because it was so, so meaningful for both of us to to be able to see someplace outside of New Hampshire or New York or New Jersey, which is essentially where, where we grew up. And it was really stifling to go back to New Hampshire after that. But at the same time, when I was on that trip, I remember, and I still have it written down in my journal, like feeling homesick for the White Mountains and just thinking like, when I really didn't want to be in that car anymore, because you know, it's a lot of driving hours. I would just kind of look at the Rocky Mountains and be like, oh, these, these things are so hard and, and mean looking. I miss the green White Mountains, you know? <laughs> so, you know, you always are comparing. And sometimes I tell people when they're complaining a lot about their lives, I'm like, you know, you're going to miss even this. You, there's always, you're always going to miss something. So I missed New Hampshire when I was on the Million Dollar Highway in Colorado. and. I miss the West Coast now, sitting in Boston. So Gail and Laura's road trip out West was their first big trip away from home. But remember, Gail said, I had two summers in high school that would qualify as two true experiences separate from home. The road trip was the first. I guess the second time was the next summer I got into a program that was a sleepaway program at a, you know, one of those like fancy schools. St. Paul's in New Hampshire has an advanced studies program for kids who live in New Hampshire. Studied math all summer, which is what I wanted to study. I really liked doing proofs. Um, And my sister didn't get into the program. So that was the first time that I spent consecutive nights away from her. And I spent the first two weeks crying myself to sleep every night. (laughs) That was really hard. I didn't have a hard time. I felt kind of like free, even though I was the one. She was at this exclusive program for talented high school students that I hadn't got into. And I was working at home at a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, but I I was the one that was happy, (laughs) which was weird. And I didn't really feel too much sympathy for her when I visited her at this camp because she was taking all these cool classes and learning and meeting new people and having crushes on cute guys. And, you know, and I was I was mopping the floor at Dunkin' Donuts. So it was really, high school was really hard to kind of disentangle ourselves because you're trying to come into yourself and become an individual. And it's hard when you have someone else who's doing that too, who's so close to you. But looking back now, I, I understand. And then it kind of switched again where she didn't miss me when we went to college and I missed her a lot. So we've always just kind of been off, I suppose, in terms of our homesickness for each other. But then when you went to college, was that the first time that you were away from both home in New Hampshire and Gail at the same time? Yeah, it was. And that was that was hard for me because I had a lot of mental health issues that I hadn't really dealt with in high school. So, you know, you you kind of think that new location, new life means, especially when you're 18, means everything's going to be great now. And that's just not just not the way it is. I spent four years in undergrad at Boston College. I it's funny, like you know how 
I don't know if you ever like, John and I tend to return to similar conversations at times and, you know, looking back at things we might have changed. And one thing I definitely would have changed if I could, if I had been a different person, which I, you know, it's impossible, but I ended up choosing between Boston College and NYU. And I was just too afraid to go to a big city felt too far from home in a way that I didn't think I'd be able to handle or manage. So I chose Boston College instead, lived on campus all four years, never lived off campus, never traveled abroad. Laura went to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I was recruited for college, so I always had imposter syndrome. Like academically, I felt like I wasn't supposed to be there or I didn't deserve to be there. But at the same time, the thing that had brought me to to college was not going well, like was my running. And I had a lot of mental blocks when it came to running and then also some physical ones. So I felt I felt like a failure. And having Gail kind of thriving in Boston, it was small and selfish, but like I was jealous of her and her seemingly like secure self, you know? I, I call it now like our divorce that kind of started in high school that had had to continue to happen. And now we're a lot happier now, or for me, myself, like now that we don't compare each other's. I don't think Gail ever really did it as much as I did, but I always compared successes and things like that. And it, now that we've let go of that and like really grown apart in a positive way, it's for the best. We couldn't really stay the way we were, you know, and have healthy relationships with other people. It's like growing pains. Yeah, like we have to leave the nest in numerous ways. I think everyone does. The year that I graduated, I didn't have a job. I was really shy and I didn't have a job lined up. So my sister and I decided we had a few savings bonds and, and money saved up from working in the summers between college years. So we decided to live together because we felt like when else would we have the opportunity to do that? So we lived together in Providence. We lived in a house like, I don't know, half a mile from her university. I was friends with her friends, but I didn't really feel like I had friends besides Laura. It was, you know, a figuring it out year. I did have like some work. And then I decided to go back to grad school, which took me back to Boston. I felt very insecure financially, and I didn't grow up with parents who knew a lot about the way businesses work or the way money works, and I was interested to learn more about that, and I also really enjoyed solving problems, like hence the math proofs in high school. So I went back to school for accounting, and I ended up working at a big four accounting firm that was located downtown, and then working at a venture capital firm that was located in Cambridge. And, you know, there's a lot of sitting at a desk job. There's, you know, a lot of great problem solving and ways that you kind of exercise your mind in a positive way. But like I often worked in audit rooms that had no windows and I often worked long hours where, you know, in, in the winter it gets dark out really early. So I would try to get as much time before and after work that felt like my own and I would walk a lot. So I would get off of a T-stop two or three stops early so I could walk a mile or two before I got to the office or after the office. And I started, especially after work, carrying my camera with me and just taking photos of what I saw. And it was a way of decompressing after work and it was a way of getting fresh air and outdoor time, even if I didn't consciously think about it that way then. And it was a way of playing with shapes and getting to acknowledge light that I might not be able to see from my cubicle, which sounds so corny, but true. And it was a way, 
of connecting with the place that I was living. Sometimes you feel disconnected when you're spending a lot of time indoors in an office. So that's, I guess, when I felt like Boston and Somerville were home, like the way I could feel the different weather. And if I did come home and I hadn't taken photos yet, I would sometimes like look out my window and see that there was fog going across the streetlight. And I was like, I got to go outside and like take photos of the way the fog looks or the way the rain looks. Like I wasn't as interested in a clear, perfect night. Like I wanted to feel the changes that were going on around. And I guess that's when I felt most, most at home. Meanwhile, while Gail was going to grad school in Boston, Laura went out west to get her MFA. I consider myself to be a West Coaster at heart. The first time I was in Berkeley, California, I knew that was where my grandfather's side of the family was from. And I loved standing on Cal's campus at 18 and thinking that his feet had also been there. But I just felt this connection that it felt like home to me. So that's why I kind of knew when I applied for grad school that I only wanted to go west of the Mississippi. Like I I only applied to schools that were west of the Mississippi. I didn't really allow it to be an option because I knew this time my parents couldn't say anything about it because they weren't going to help out financially. And not that they did for undergrad either, but my mom was very, really did not want us to go far away for undergrad. And I listened to her when I was 17, but I didn't feel like I needed to when I was 22. So I I went to a grad school in Moraga, California, St. Mary's, and I immediately felt at home there. I don't really know what what made it feel like home, except that, except maybe it being far away. I really liked that. I liked feeling independent for the first time. Then I met a guy and I feel like it's kind of negative, but I feel like maybe this is just my personality, but as sometimes more of a passive person, I feel I let a man's decisions kind of sway mine. And I made the decision when I was 20, five to move to the East Coast, to Richmond, Virginia, to be with a guy who was living with his parents. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to really skew this positively. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, sometimes we move because we are looking for home in another person. Sometimes we move on and realize home is not in the place we thought it was. It can be really hard to distinguish when we are searching for home in someone versus when we actually find home in someone. When I moved to New York for a partner who happens to be a man, and because I'm a woman, I was worried that people would judge me as a passive follower. I wondered to myself if I was being a passive follower, a logical relationship builder, or a reckless romantic. In certain ways, I've regretted the decision to move back ever since, but it's not really an option anymore for me to live out there. So that's something I've had to accept, even though it's my choice, essentially, because I'm still an independent person. But being with a a partner who loves Boston and, you know, I kind of consider this to be a golden age with my parents right now. It's, you know, they're in their 60s and they're healthy. And I know that that doesn't last forever. I think it's a good time for me to be close to my family. California is just like a lover, I you know, that 
I had to kind of give up, but I can visit from time to time. <laughs> if more than like three months goes by without me having like a West Coast trip planned, it's, I'm pretty much at that point right now where I need to plan another one. <laughs> so. so while Gail was in Boston chasing fog with her camera, Laura was in Richmond, Virginia, bartending. And one night, this guy from Boston wandered into the restaurant Laura was working at. He wandered into a restaurant that my sister was bartending at. He and his friend struck up a conversation with her, and she felt like it was the right idea to give him my phone number and then tell me about it after, <laughs> because she knew he was from Boston. So, he was so mad at me. <laughs> his name was John. He gave me a call when he got home, and I let it go to voicemail. I remember like a train was going by, like I was waiting for the train and I let the next train go, um, just kind of watching the phone ring in my hands. And I think that's one of those like images, you know, that kind of like sear in your memory, like it shouldn't be important, but it was somehow. And we started dating. I know it's cute. I used to like every six months or so get a text from John just saying thank you for Gail's number. Gail and John started carving out time for each other in their tight schedules. And during a season in Gail's life, when she started contemplating a big change. I was kind of feeling like I was in my last busy season, even though I'd only worked in public accounting for less than three years, but I didn't see that as my long-term career necessarily. I was looking for some change. I'd applied to do the same work, but in London. I thought that that would be a great change of scenery, but I realized that I would be driving an hour or more out of the city to go to visit clients. And that's what I was doing in Boston, too. I was driving an hour to go audit companies, and I, I realized I'd be doing the same thing there that I was doing here. You know, I was obviously looking for a change, a big change, and that wasn't the right fit. But I had talked about it with John, and he was also at a time in his life where he was looking for a change work-wise. He had had some roadblocks in getting promoted in his job, and he knew he was going to be looking for a change. And he was actually friends with this guy, Foster Huntington, who started the hashtag van life. I want to pause here to acknowledge something that Gail and I have talked about before, that choosing van life is a privilege compared to being in a place where you have no other option but to live in your van. Like we've talked about before on this show, being able to freely choose your version of home is a privilege. And being able to safely live and travel in a van is a privilege too. Our society does not treat all van lifers the same way. Race has an impact on van life. And people of color face discrimination on the road and the outdoors that I've never had to face as a white woman. And that's not trying to be overlooked in this conversation. I mean, this topic could be its own episode, its own podcast. Even though that's not the focus of this episode, I do have a few links in the show notes to resources that expand upon this conversation, including the conversation of diversifying van life. Also, She Explores has a sister podcast, Women on the Road, and it features in-depth interviews covering a variety of subjects about various women living on the road. So John had been following him and what he was doing, and he thought that it looked like something that he might want to do and talked about it with me to see if it'd be something that I might want to do. And I said yes, but we at that point we'd been dating for a year, so it didn't feel like the right time a year in. And then also 
you know, with student loans and typical monthly expenses, I didn't have a whole lot of money saved and I wasn't going to jump into a big lifestyle change without some kind of cushion, especially coming from the background that I was in. So I made a spreadsheet and started thinking about where I could save money, what I could ship off, but not in like a super restrictive way and thought about how much I feasibly could save a month. I got John starting to think about saving and paying off some debt that he had. And we just felt like, you know, a year and a half looked like the right, the right time frame for us. So it was really just going about continuing to live our lives, enjoying work, getting to know each other better. Like we didn't know if we'd be together in a year and a half. But it felt like a good goal to work towards. Gail and John did stay together, and they continued to save. A year and a half later, they left their jobs and most of their stuff in the Northeast, got into their van, and began living on the road full-time. Before we get ahead of ourselves, let's go back to Laura for a second. Remember, she had been living in Richmond, Virginia. I was in a bad relationship, so when we broke up, I was very heartbroken Partially, I think, because I didn't know what to do with myself. So I moved back home to where Gail was. And then I think a year or less later, Gail ended up getting in the van with John. And I was like, damn it. (laughs) And she was like, well, you left too. We lived about, I think, a 30-minute walk from each other. And we still didn't see each other very often. So that's just kind of, it's kind of like how it is with any other friend. You just you only see them once every few weeks or, or something like that. Yeah, and you take it for granted. You're like, oh, I can see them yeah. whenever. Yeah, definitely. Gail was a CPA, so she was working really long hours, and I was just trying to figure out, like, you know, get over heartbreak, etc. I asked Laura how she'd felt when Gail told her she was going to move into the van. It was definitely like a, you know, like a quick punch in the gut, that kind of feeling. But then I, the feeling of happiness for her is, is what I focused on to take over because it was really exciting. And I knew that it was kind of like a make or break point in her relationship too and in what she was deciding to do for the rest of the next chapter of her life because she was giving up her CPA license and things like that. So I was really excited for her because I never thought of her as being an accountant. I just didn't see her in that life. But, you know sad for myself, but I was kind of a sad sack then because at the same time, like our grandmother and our uncle was dying. So it was just a hard time in general. But Gail kind of moving on was like a really good thing. And then my brother also at the same time was expecting his first child. So where there were like kind of negative things happening, there were good things happening too. There's a lot of changes. Yeah, yeah. And I talked to Gail on the phone the other day And she's like, oh, it will be interesting to hear what Laura has to say about that. Because as Gail sees it in her mind, she felt like she kind of had blinders on. Still super thankful for the opportunity and glad that she did it. Mm -hmm. But also felt that, yeah, had blinders on. Yeah, I mean, but that's a good thing. You know, I think it's still like definitely a good thing. I didn't feel like I was being abandoned. That would be selfish of me to feel that way. It was a tough time for me because I came back home to be with family. And then all of a sudden, Gail was leaving. My brother, you know, was starting this new life. I lived with my brother for the first few months that I was back in Boston. And then he fell in love and moved out. So I I did kind of feel like everyone else had things going on and I didn't. But that's another comparison type thing that isn't helpful. (laughs) 
We we kind of always went into it with like the year time frame, which is pretty much what we did. We partially it was easy to explain to people. It was easy to explain to my parents. My dad had just retired and he couldn't understand why you'd leave like a stable income at a good company. Uh, and it was also easier to explain to like the people who worked in my office because <laughs> they all worked in finance and they couldn't imagine why anyone would want to live in a van with no toilet. Like that was one of the first questions. And so it's like the, the year time frame seemed reasonable for us. And the whether or not it would be a year, I, I don't think we really knew that until we got on the road. But we also the way we traveled, we spent money faster than we could sustain. So we actually pretty much had to get off the road after a year, no matter what. So <laughs> kind of made the decision for us. I asked Gail what some of the biggest positives and negatives were in regards to making the van home. I, I would definitely say the best parts are the parts that are over-romanticized. They're the things that you see on social media. <laughs> The amount of variety of landscape in our country is really incredible. There's so much room for beauty just aesthetically. And that was definitely wonderful and something that had really struck me as a 16-year-old experiencing that for the first time. So it was really fun to see that and to document that as a 28-year-old. You know, on the flip side of that, it was also overwhelming at times and I felt almost like a compulsive need to photograph in a way that didn't always make me feel great. I mean, I feel like every positive has a negative, so I'm probably going to kind of think through it that way. For my relationship, it was really like the most intimate that we had been, and we had the most fights that we'd had, um, and also we were closer than we'd ever been before, and it was really wonderful to get to know him in that way and to really be able to kind of nurture our relationship in that way. Not a lot of people get to spend that much time with their significant others. And I grew like used to that. But at the same time, I'm not an extremely verbal person. And he is a very verbal person. He's more of an extrovert. Like he loves connecting with his friends and talking. And that's something that can be draining for me at times. Uh, so it was sometimes hard to not feel like I was giving him enough when we were together all the time and, and needing some quiet. And I think it exacerbated some underlying anxiety for me that I hadn't dealt with before and I'm still, still working on. And it was also, I'm not someone who does great with leisure time. Like my sister actually said it well. She was like, we're opposites in that like, she relaxes too much and I don't know how to relax. Like she, she's like all about reading and, and avoiding work. And I'm like all about doing work. Um, and that's not a great way to be when you're traveling in the way that we were, because I would feel like I needed to be doing more than I was. And that's just not productive and it's not healthy. I think in certain ways that took a toll on our relationship. And we also tried to work together and, and start doing some consulting together. And we found that we weren't great at working together. So, you know, a small space can breed that. But overall, like, I'm really grateful for that time in our lives. And I've heard of other people who, you know, whose relationships don't survive that small space or making decisions together all the time. One of the most common things I heard from people who had never traveled that way they all said, like, I could never do that with my significant other. <laughs> like, we kill each other. And, I, you know, my answer to that is always, like, you can. Like, you could do that. You might be surprised. And if our relationship wasn't going to work, that's okay, too. Like, that's part of why you 
do something big with the person that you love. <laughs> and then also we have the, all these memories from it too. But yeah, best and worst things. I mean, the, I guess those are, I don't know. That's a really big question, Julie. <laughs> I know. No, it's okay. Open-ended is good. I'm <laughs> and I will say that one other thing that I struggled with. This is something I love about Gail. She's not going to give you just one side. She's going to show you the beauty and the uncomfortable. I, I was a private person. I had a hard time. Like, I was growing She Explorers. I was posting my own trip photos and my own perspective. And I was also sharing stories of others, but the ratio was more 75%. This is the trip I'm on. This is what I'm seeing. This is the beauty. These are my impressions. And I pretty quickly started to feel like the dissonance of what you're portraying versus what you're feeling. Social media in general has become more narrative and it's become more honest and open, at least in dialogue and writing, less so in imagery. But at that time, it was sometimes difficult for me to feel like I'm connecting with all these people, but not necessarily connecting with myself or being as connected to my family as I had been before. Obviously, I had to ask Gail about home. What made living on the road feel like home? I really liked our bed. <laughs> that was really comfortable. I always wanted to sleep in it, even no matter where we stayed. If we were staying in a friend's house and they had a couch for us, we'd always sleep in the driveway in the van, partially because it felt like home, partially because the bed was super comfortable. This sounded familiar. Bed is another one of our homes, isn't it? <laughs> bed is my, probably my favorite home. <laughs> yeah. My friend in college used to call it my throne because I would just have everything set up in there. I would have, like, my laptop to watch my 30 Rock. I would have my books for class, my snacks, and, you know, my <laughs> periodicals. It was, everything was in there. Now I have to have room for Steve. So I, I utilize my nightstand. But before, my bed was my nightstand. Uh, definitely, that is me when I'm single. Yeah. <laughs> John and I worked with a friend of ours to build out the van. So we felt very connected to it in that way to have something really that felt like home. Our friend who helped us with the van, he had some barn wood from a barn in the town over from where I grew up. My big project for the van was refinishing this table and having that as the table that we ate dinner on and played cards on after dinner. And that was like a, a pretty strong connection to home for me. I really wanted to have a piece of wood from our own barn, but I was nervous to ask my dad about it. So I, I didn't. So that was like an actual object in the van that felt very homey. And then John and I did have a tendency to return to places versus always finding somewhere new because it is a lot to, to figure out and navigate a new place, even though that's one of the wonderful parts of that kind of travel. And we returned to the Tetons a couple of times. We really liked the burger at this Thai restaurant, which is so random, but it was really good. We returned to Southern California because the weather's great and I had family there and new friends. We returned to Oregon too. I love the Oregon coast. I love Cape Lookout. That's one of my favorite places in the whole world. It has so many moods and it's beautiful and it's easy to hike and I don't know. I just love it. So yeah, there was definitely home in certain places. Then there was the ways that you connect with people who are back where you came from. My niece was under a year old during that time period, turned a year old part of the way through. And my sister used to babysit her a lot. So we'd FaceTime 
the three of us. And that was a great way to, I have a lot of saved screenshots from like a baby and my sister and me. And that was a fun way to stay connected too. Gail has a piece that she wrote for She Explores a few years back called On Constants and Holidays. A link to the full article is in the show notes, but here is an excerpt. Last year, I spent Thanksgiving on the other side of the country. My boyfriend and I grilled a cheap steak in our cast iron skillet atop a Coleman camp stove. There were no picnic tables in the BLM land outside of Joshua Tree National Park. So we cooked on the ground, finally digging in at 10 p.m. I'd miss my family, who were asleep in New England. But I was with a man who felt like home. Here's Gail talking about that Thanksgiving in the van. That morning we'd, I think we'd met up with a friend of his and like rented cheap wetsuits and I pretended that I surfed <laughs> that day and then we drove too late leaving LA and drove out to the Joshua Tree area and stopped at a grocery store and we were like, we need something special, it's Thanksgiving. But we were also concerned with always spending too much money. So we bought like, it was like $4, like really tough steak. And I think I made some Brussels sprouts, too, because I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and, like, we had a beer, I think. There was, you know, there's certain stress that can come with the way holidays are traditionally spent. And there wasn't that stress. It was just something that felt, like, a little bit special. Yeah, and John did feel like home, and he does feel like home. And that trip definitely solidified that for me. And what made Gail feel homesick on the road? So I think I did feel homesick, and it was exacerbated by guilt. And so they were two sides of the same coin. <laughs> I definitely have always been—I str- I still struggle with this. Like, I carry a lot of guilt. Like, I feel guilty a lot. I don't know if it's the Catholic upbringing or, <laughs> or not. Such a stereotype. But my family often would— say things like, you're going to come back home, right? Or, you know, I'm glad you're on the same time zone now. Or, you know, this is just a year. So I would feel bad about that. And I felt that I definitely missed them in that, but also, you know, bristled against that a bit because you want to be an individual and (laughs) make decisions. And, you know, just because you're not in the same place as your family doesn't mean you're running away from them or that you're saying you don't want to, to spend that time. It's ironic because my parents lived in New Hampshire and their family lived in New Jersey and and New York. You know, it was a five, six-hour drive. And we saw them, like, twice a year. They were very independent from their parents, and their parents encouraged that. That can be a little bit frustrating at times. The reality is that when you're home, when you're with those people, everyone has their own lives anyway. So, you know, your family has a lot going on. They're busy, even if they're close you know, within an hour's drive, like that hour might be the same as a six-hour drive or a plane flight. I can look back on that trip and know that it wasn't that long a period of time, but still felt frustrated by the feeling of wanting to be two places at once sometimes. And when we decided to move back, and I'm sure we'll get to that, but when we decided to move back to New England, I was actually less keen on it than John because I'd experienced the number of people saying, no, you can't move away, and then being home, not feeling like it actually makes that big a difference. And then 
you know, I don't know. It, it can just, I don't know, family's complicated, I guess. <laughs> Sometimes when you're close in proximity to the people you love, you can mentally be far away, distracted, or maybe there's an invisible chasm you don't even know that's forming. And sometimes when you're physically, locationally far away, you're more present than ever, more ready to do whatever you need to, to be there. So when I was at White Sands National Monument and when I got a phone call from my sister who never called me because we didn't need to call, you know, we didn't need to talk, we could text, we had certain understandings that I kind of took for granted, I think. So when I got that call and she... Um, to put it like in the simplest way, I, I needed her. When I got that call and she needed me because she'd been sexually assaulted and it had happened a year and a half before that moment when I was just, you know, planning to take this trip. And I wasn't there for her, even though we spent time together. And um, that kind of shattered my concept of not our relationship, but just like, it just made me feel like I shouldn't take certain things for granted. And that communication still matters, even if it's, you don't feel like you need to communicate. My rape was something that I only kept inside for I guess it was about a year and a half, but um, now that feel, looking back, that seems like a short time, but at the time it felt like a really long time to hold that in. Trauma makes things a little blurry, you know, but the main memory I have is just of, of needing her. Though Gail was thousands of miles away from Laura, from that part of her home. She was there, willing to do whatever she needed to get back home. I, I, I was, but I, was, I wasn't there for her, and I couldn't, you know, I, I flew home, and John and I had always planned on going back to the East Coast for the holidays. We were gonna drive home. So he drove the van back, and I don't know. I'll always be grateful to him for his willingness to let me go and his willingness to for us both to drive 15 hours to get to the airport, to get to a flight the very next day. But it was really it was really tough to experience that concentrated time with her and to want to take care of her and to to know that we're adults like I can't I couldn't that's not my role, you know. I and mean, honestly I don't talk about this a lot, but I don't know. Like, I, I slept in the same bed as her the first night, and I told her that I wished that it had happened to me instead of her, because that's how you feel when you love someone that much, you know? Like, you want to feel their pain, and the fact that I couldn't feel it, and I didn't know. And when we were kids, like, whenever she cried, I would cry. Like, it was like I couldn't even help it, so to not know... Um, because she felt shame. She told me when I told her that, she was like, no, I'm, I would never want it, that to happen to you. Like, I didn't know she means that. Yeah. It's, I don't know, it's, it's hard. So it was, and it was hard to, to leave her after that. But it was hard to, to leave and, and to go back again. 
it was hard to leave and to go back to the road again. But after the holidays, during the dead of winter, Gail and John hit the road. Yeah, we left again um, early February to, for warmer weather. <laughs> I remember when we left, his parents, they were both on their roof, like, shoveling snow off. <laughs> and we just, like, waved goodbye. <laughs> uh, and Laura did visit one time in California in March. She, she came out to L.A. and camped with us and... That was really fun to share that with her. And and John, his little brother, took one of his spring breaks from college to spend a week with us, too. So there's definitely ways to incorporate family in an alternative lifestyle, too. And it was hard when, when we did come back again. That's back to the East Coast, once the trip was coming to a close. We didn't have anywhere to live. So, like, our our year trip was... We weren't traveling the whole time. Like the last couple months, we were just (laughs) parking the van in New England. So it was a a different kind of travel. Essentially, we left for that trip in August and came back to New England in June. But without a place to stay, to live, we were just going to live in the van for the summer. We came back because John's little brother graduated from college in Massachusetts. So we definitely wanted to be there for that. And I will say that throughout the year, it was the year of needing to be back for family things. My brother got married that year, too, and we flew back for my brother's wedding. John's best friend got married in North Carolina, and we were on the West Coast, and we had to fly. You know, we flew to that. So a lot of, honestly, a lot of our budget ended up going to family and friend commitments that we, you know, really value. And if we did it again, we would have timed it so that we left after these weddings because it just financially wasn't the best decision. In any case, family drew us home again, too. And, you know, quite frankly, we were out of money. Like, She Explores wasn't making any money. It was a passion project. This was before She Explores was a podcast. So we were kind of figuring it out that summer, living in the van, kind of near the lakes, but not wanting to impose on anyone. It's hard to be in that position when you're an adult. Around this time, John got a job offer in Manchester, New Hampshire, and Gail wanted to grow, she explores. So I I just was in Manchester trying to figure out what was next for She Explores. Had so many moments where I was like, this is it. This is, I can't do this anymore. I can't sustain this. Just, you know, financially can't sustain this. And then also kind of figuring out that the specific town we were in wasn't going to work for us as a couple. It was just one of those, it, it just wasn't the right fit. I guess the tipping point for staying in New England was we both started looking for jobs elsewhere. This is over the course of two years, trying to find work in Portland, Oregon, or Seattle. That's one of my favorite cities. Or L.A. We both really like L.A. too. The thing that really kind of sealed the deal for me on staying was spending more time in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and hiking and doing some more backpacking overnights And seeing, like, how much my home state had to offer, like, the place that I grew up. Uh, I grew up hiking there, but, you know, there's a difference between hiking as a kid when your parents are like, this is what we're doing on Sunday morning, and going out and choosing it for yourself. I kind of realized, like, I've found a bit of a sanctuary in those places, and I've found that I'm more capable than I thought I was in those places. I didn't really want to give that up yet. And I also really liked the the seacoast. Like, New Hampshire has a nice seacoast area. So I, I talked to John and was like, maybe we could just live somewhere that's 
there's still a commute to your work, but if you don't have to go in as often, like we could find some compromise and optimize where we are right now. And that's what they did. They moved closer to the seacoast, while still being just an easy drive away from the White Mountains. And like the joy that I found walking around Somerville. Somerville is the city just north of Boston that Gail had lived in. At night, like I could probably have done that forever. Like I could, I could, I could be the little old lady walking around Somerville and every night I would see something different. I feel that way driving the back roads in New Hampshire. One of the things that was like fun that we did with my dad was him just loading us up in the car and us rolling down the windows and looking out and seeing something new in the small state that we grew up in. I don't think we ever went into Vermont or Maine or Massachusetts on those drives. It was specifically New Hampshire and it was often back roads. It cultivated that kind of curiosity that I hope to have, you know, forever, right? (laughs) Here's another excerpt from Gail's piece on Constance and Holidays. But what I've come to appreciate are the things that haven't changed, whether I'm in a van, at home, or up in the air. I'm living in my home estate for the first time in 10 years. I love that I still want to jump out of the car when the fog rolls in over river water. Or I spot the crisscross of naked branches at the last light of day. I still feel at home in flannels and boots. I worried that I wouldn't be inspired when I wasn't stimulated by varying backdrops. It turns out what I was chasing, light and color, pattern and texture, connection and community, has stayed with me. I think I knew this all along. And now for me, that beauty is definitely expanded to people and how people surprise you. And that's definitely a constant, too. Especially with the work that I'm doing, being able to have these deeper conversations, being able to listen to someone's voice over and over and over again in an edit process and to really get to feel like I know them intimately has become a constant that I'm grateful for. This is my home right now, but I don't, I I wouldn't want to be someone who's just like, yep, this is where I'm going to live for the next 30 years. I know my parents did that, but I don't know that they felt that way when they were my age. I don't know. (laughs) I I would never want to have that mentality of like, this is it, because it feels a little, I, I hope I can be more flexible than that. I also asked Laura what she loves about the East Coast. Um, I... I can uh, confidently say that the beer is better on the East Coast. We have the <laughs> we have the the IPAs under lock here. So, <laughs> along with that, Laura loves the ferries that hop between the islands, whale watching, the library nearby, and how beautiful Boston can be when the weather is nice. She also told me that practicing yoga in her home is making her dwelling place feel more like a home. And it's also nice that Gail is just a day trip away even with Laura's car-free lifestyle. Ten-year-old Gail would say that home should never change. Like, nothing should change. <laughs> home, is, home is a concept that doesn't allow for any rises or falls. Like, it's just like, home doesn't change. And 32-year-old Gail would say that home is more flexible and that 
it's okay to want to depend on things, but you have to make room in your life for change too. Back in the White Mountains, on the snowshoeing trip with Gail, something happened. Something shifted. The second day, we went out into the deep powder snow and tried to summit a nearby peak. Instead, we sunk deep into the snow with almost every step, and we went maybe a mile or two. And I don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was the uphill struggle that got endorphins to push a little frustration out of me. Maybe it was the hot and cold of exerting oneself in the snow that broke my homesickness fever and reminded me I can do hard things. How has post-holing while (laughs) snowshoeing been? I was glad you didn't have that recorder on before because I I may have swore, sworn, swore a couple times. Maybe it was the mountains themselves, caked in snow. That just made me feel at home. The trees, like every inch of them are covered in snow, which when you live in a city, it's that first magical day where it's like that. But when you're out here, it's like that for like five days after a good snowstorm. Yeah, because cars haven't been driving by spewing (laughs) like dirty street water all over them. (laughs) Maybe it was the quiet. It's also really quiet, besides, like, the wind blowing through trees. Yeah, I like that sound where you can hear the wind in the distance, where it's not windy where you are, but... I also like it when you can hear trees squeaking like an old door, you know? Sometimes when you hear, like... It also makes me wonder, is there a tree about ready to fall off? As I, like, am standing by two trees that look like they're about to... Under two trees that look like they're about to fall over. If I die, you'll have this recording to give me Or maybe it was Gail. When I met Gail, it was in the spring of 2015, on a group night hike in L.A. that she was co-hosting with Alex Schwartz of Shoestring Adventures. As a more introverted person, I usually didn't go to things like that very often. But I went on a whim. And as soon as I met Gail, I instantly felt at home. And we fell into a long conversation. We nerded out together on the trail that was lit only by moonlight. And our friendship only grew from that point on. Though I put going snowshoeing with Gail on my list of pros for moving to New York City, I really could have just put Gail... Friends are home. Talking to Gail for this episode reminded me that home is not just a place with a list of pros. Home is choosing to be flexible, being curious, being present, and listening to the ones we love. On the next episode of Unrooted... Just when things are starting to feel better, something completely unexpected happens. Check out the show notes of this episode to see photos of Gail and Laura as kids on their road trip out west when they were 16 and as adults. I also have links to She Explores, Van Life resources, and other fun stuff. And if you're enjoying Unrooted, please tell your friends 
share your favorite episode on social media, rate and review the show on iTunes, or do all of the above. All of it really helps get the word out. This show is hosted and produced by Julie Hotz. Music for the show was composed by myself as well. Although I'd like to note that the tiny little snippets you heard of Adam Torres were of his song called Juniper Arms, which is on his 2016 album, Pearls to Swine. But that version you heard was recorded on my iPhone. So I highly recommend you look it up online and listen to it. It's a truly beautiful song. Thanks for listening to Unrooted. I'm so hot in this closet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Out of control. <laughs>